Let's turn in the sacred scriptures this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, we'll begin reading at verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This morning we expound the first commandment of the law of God. This passage will help us do so. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. On the basis of Deuteronomy 10 and many other passages throughout the scriptures, out of her catechism, explains the first commandment to us in Lord's Day 34. You'll find that on pages 20 and 21 in the back of your Psalter. We're going to take question and answer 93. Question and answer 94 and question and answer 95. Lord's Day 34, question 93. How are these, the Ten Commandments above, how are these commandments divided? Into two tables, the first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God, the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone, With humility and patience, submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures, rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, instead of, or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved of God, the book of Deuteronomy that we read from this morning means second law, Deuteronomy, second law. The second giving and explanation of the law. The first giving and explanation of the law is in the book of Exodus. The second one is in the book of Deuteronomy. That book is really a collection of sermons given by Moses at the end of his life 
before he dies and before the Israelites enter into the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy 5, he restates the Ten Commandments. And then, in the rest of the book, Moses explains those Ten Commandments and applies them to the people of God. So, for example, Deuteronomy 6 through 12 is Moses' inspired explanation of the first commandment of those ten. So the passage that we read this morning, Deuteronomy 10, is part of the explanation of the first commandment. An appropriate passage then to read as we preach on the first commandment this morning. The first commandment is all the ten commandments are applicable to us today even though they're in the Old Testament. We covered that last time. The Ten Commandments do not fall away in the New Testament, but they are the moral law of God for all times and all places. These are Father's rules for His children who've been adopted out of the house of bondage into the house of Father. They are no longer the law of condemnation to us. As Huxima said once, if that law tries to come into our house and to condemn us, curse us, damn us to hell, then you kick it out of your house that way until it comes back as the perfect law of liberty. It's no longer a law that is over us, and we are no longer under it as a condemner to hell. We've been freed from that injustification. But it comes back upon us as the law that guides us into a life of holiness before Jehovah God. And in gratitude for Him, and by His grace working in us, we desire to obey it, and we can obey it, not perfectly, sinlessly, but we can. It is the road upon which we must drive the car of our life. That law, as you know, is divided into two sections. The first section, or the first table, is commandments one through four that gives our duties toward God in our relationship to Him. This is how you behave toward Him. And the second table is commands five through ten that governs our relationship to our neighbor for God's sake. This morning, then, that first commandment of that first table, this is first in our relationship to God. You are to consciously have Him as God and to worship Him and to trust Him and to seek the good from Him alone. That's a battle for us. We are idolaters by nature. It's a battle for us all of our life long. To add to the illustration... We are a refurbished car that's set upon that road. We've been totaled in the past. In the fall, we became totally corrupt, totally given over to idolatry. Not him, but anything else but him will be our God. And by his sovereign grace, he takes us and in regeneration, he puts a new engine within us. But we have a lot of the remains of the old wreck within us. And that car constantly wants to go off that road into the ditches. And we need this command. And we need an explanation of it. But the second section of the catechism in the background or deliverance that motivates us to honor this command. And we need to know that for our idolatry, there's only one remedy. The remedy for idolatry is the theme of the sermon. We'll notice first the rebellion. We'll start with our sin against this commandment. Second, the remedy. And third, the resulting obedience to the commandment. The remedy for idolatry. The, the rebellion first. Second, the remedy. And third, the result. The first commandment of God's law forbids us from having any other gods besides the one true God of heaven and earth as our God. The commandment commands that of us not because 
There are other gods to choose from that could be your god. It's not as though, of course, there are a number of gods lined up there that are really gods, but the commandment is telling us just make sure you pick Jehovah out of that lineup to be your God. There are no other gods. He is the only God. But the problem is that men in their imagination think to make something else take the place of God. Bring Him out of the way and set something else in the place that only He should have in their life. And anything that they do that with, be it a person or a thing, becomes then a God to them. It becomes an idol. We are having that thing as our God. What does it mean to have a God? The Catechism says having God as your God means that you trust in Him and depend upon Him alone and that you seek all good to come from Him. To have an idol then in the place of Jehovah God is to set something up instead of Him in which you will trust and in which you will seek the good. Let's start with the trust. Question and answer 95. Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested Himself in His Word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Trust generally regards the future. Whether that future is 60 seconds from now or that future is 60 years from now. Trust is what I depend upon to take care of me in the future. The future is unknown to me. It is frightening to me. What will I appeal to? What will I depend upon? What will I lean on to care for me in the future? And we are not to replace God with anything else as that which we depend upon to take care of us for our future King Asa did just that in the book of 1 Chronicles and was rebuked by the prophet of God for it. King Asa started out well, trusting in the Lord in his life. When the Ethiopians came and attacked him, Asa went straight to God and cried out to God and said, God, help me. What shall I do with this? And then he went to strategize and how to defeat the Ethiopians, and the prophet of God came to Asa and said, well done, Asa, you trust in the Lord. But later in his kingship, when another enemy came and troubled Asa, he did the opposite. He didn't go to the Lord right away. Didn't go to the Lord at all with respect to his unknown future. But instead, he went straight to the king of Syria and said, you come and help me. You attack them from behind. I'll attack them from the front and we'll take care of them that way. And the prophet of God comes to Asa there and says, you did not trust God with respect to the future. You made the king of Syria your replacement. You set him up in place of God. And of course, it's not that he couldn't go to the king of Syria and say, attack them from the rear. It's that he set the king of Syria up as his trust, as his ultimate hope, instead of Jehovah God, and didn't understand or apply to God, knowing that God is the one who would give him a king to attack from the rear. And the idolatry persisted in Asa's life when he had a disease in his foot. He didn't entrust himself to the Lord. He didn't go to the Lord to seek help for his unknown future. But he went to the doctor alone, and again, and not because there's anything wrong with going to the doctor, but he didn't go to the Lord as the one who gives him the gift of a doctor and can use a doctor or not in his life. He entrusted his future entirely to men and set that man up in the place of God in his life. What do you look for to carry you into the future? What do you depend upon? 
for your unknown future, be it 60 seconds from now or 60 years from now. Be honest. And what do I look for and entrust myself to? Our money? Our business? The economy? Education? Parents? You're sending your children to school, and am I sending my children to school as an act of idolatry or as an act of worship? Because this, the education, will be what carries them into the future. This is the thing to which I might entrust them in the future. Or is it God who holds their future? And he uses this gift of education. Nothing wrong with edu- educate them, by all means. But this is not the replacement for him, as though I might appeal to this. It's not sturdy enough for that. It can't handle that kind of a trust. It guarantees nothing. Your money is not firm. It guarantees nothing. Your position in society is not firm. It guarantees nothing. In reality, there is nothing apart from God himself that is dependable in the ultimate sense of the word. Your own breath is not dependable. So quickly, it can be taken away from you. Something can malfunction. The second law of thermodynamics. Everything is decaying. Sometimes called the law of entropy. Everything is decaying. Nothing in this creation is ultimately dependable. As Einstein discovered, there is no fixed reference point in this creation at all. Even time and space that we think are so dependable are not entirely fixed. Time itself is slightly different when you get farther away from the earth. It's not changeless. No creature is changeless. Your GPS in your car has to take into account the seven millisecond difference between the way time works up where the satellite is and the way time works here in order to tell you to take a right turn at the right time. Even then, it doesn't always get it right, of course. But the farther you get, time is affected by gravity. And the farther away you get from the earth, time is slightly different. It's still, in God's providence, dependable enough that life can go on. He holds it firm enough that time and space are dependable enough for us. But it's not utterly dependable. It's not utterly changeless. It's not fixed. Only God himself is. You want to cry out after knowing this. Is there nothing in this creation that is solid enough that I can depend upon utterly? And the answer is no, there's not. You cannot replace him with anything and entrust yourself to it. Everything is changing. Everything is decaying. Only He is fixed. Only His character, only His promises are utterly dependable and true and changeless. And He alone reaches around everything in His creation and upholds it, causes it to continue in the way that He wants it to continue. And He alone holds you and your future in His hands. You can't entrust your future to anything else but Him. Set your eyes upon Him. He will hold you and He will carry you through unto Himself. We are idolaters when we trust in something other than Him. Secondly, we are idolaters when we seek for the good to come to us from some other source than Him. Question and answer 94 of the Catechism. To have God as God is to expect all good things from Him only. And therefore to be idolatrous is to expect 
the good to come from something else or someone else in place of him ultimately. In Psalm 4, verse 6, the psalmist David asks a question that every human being on this planet has to ask himself or herself in due time. And it is this, who will show us any good? Where will the good come from in this life? What will be the source of good? We live here on this planet and there are troubles and there are difficulties and death awaits us one day. Where will the good come from as we are here spinning on this ball? What is the source of it? And whatever you give yourself to, to answer that question, that thing is your God. From that you are seeking the good. The good is real hope. The good is lasting, substantial joy. The good is sustenance. And wherever you think it comes from, that's your God. And we are tempted constantly to seek the good in anything other than Him. When the good only comes from Him, it only can come from Him. Your yearning and my yearning for things as ultimate things, as things from which we will suck the good, suck joy and sustenance out of, is idolatry. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, when it explains this first commandment, explains idolatry also as corrupt zeal. That is, an undue zeal after someone or something other than him thinking that the good will come out of this to me. What do you thirst for? What do you run after? What do you seek with zeal? More than your God. That is your idol. John in the last verse of 1 John says, little children, speaking of course of all of God's people because we're all the little children of God, Keep yourselves from idols. And he says that when he hasn't talked about a single idol throughout the five chapters of that epistle, at least not an idol of wood or of stone. But he's talked about the issues of the heart, loving God and serving Him and seeking Him because idols are whatever we are tempted to love more than Him, to desire more than Him, to try to suck the good out of besides Him. I had to say to a young man once, who was getting married, that he was making an idol out of his future wife. This particular young couple wanted to write their own vows for their wedding, which is a fine thing. But his vows contain things like from everlasting to everlasting, you will be the only source of my joy. And I had to say to him, look, I'm glad you love her. I want you to love her. But you're making her hold a place in your life that God can only hold. And when he saw it, he agreed. And he changed his approach to it. I can remember when I was a young boy, probably fifth or sixth grade, Saturday afternoon, watching a college football game. It was the Colorado Buffaloes against your Michigan Wolverines. Six seconds left in that game. The Buffaloes were down 21 to 26. And now, children, young people, you have to remember the point of the illustration, not just the illustration. Six seconds left. Cordell Stewart... 73 yards as time's going out. Westbrook comes down with the ball in the end zone. Buffaloes win, and I went absolutely crazy. And I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, looking back to it, it was idolatrous worship. This is the good in life. 
this will be the ultimate thing. This game can give me the good and all of the difficulties and all of the troubles of life. That's what I thought in my mind. That's what I was saying in my heart. I know I did. This is the ultimate good in this life. I worshipped it. I bowed before it. Gave myself over to it as though the good could be sucked out of it. And so my zeal for it was undue. It was greater than my zeal for God. If some of your greatest joys and some of your greatest zeals are when they win or when they make the playoffs and some of your greatest sorrows are when they lose or when they miss the playoffs, there's a problem there. If your wife can tell that you're you're grumpy the whole rest of the day after they lose, there's a problem there. You answer the question, who will show me any good? What do you put there? What are you really seeking in your life to grant you the good in the midst of this difficult way? When the heart thirsts for something more than it thirsts for him, The reason why the heart is doing that is because it believes that this thing will give me the good. This will be the source of life and of joy for me. I can suck it out of it and it will give me what I stand in need of in the midst of this life. And that means then that that thing or that person has taken the place of God alone who is to be the source of the good, the desires of my heart. It's no wonder why the scriptures speak of the desire to be yoked unequally with someone that I may not be yoked from as idolatry in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because the desire for that, the love for that person in opposition to what God says means that I am defying his place in my life and I'm seeking the good out of this in opposition to him. It's idolatry. The rich young ruler. He went away sorrowful after what Jesus said to him, not because he misunderstood what Jesus said to him, but because he was making an idol out of his money and out of those things, and God was, Jesus was poking him right there because he needed to be poked right there, and it hurts when our idols are being poked and smashed away from us. Examine yourself today and me myself today. What am I running after? As the source of the good in this life. And it can be subtle at times. Is it a person? Is it a career? Is it power over another? The respect of other people upon me? Is it a substance? Is it vacations? Is it my own family, my kids? Is it order in my life? You and I are God worshipers, beloved. Or Christians. And what it means to be a Christian is to be a God worshiper. But even the God worshipers struggle with idolatry in their life and do so in spite of the fact that it is an offense to this great God who has redeemed my life from the pit, who's taken me out of that house of bondage and into his own house set me up as his son, as a prince under the king of all the earth, had given me a reason and a hope to live. And yet, we commit these idolatries. While we are in his house and right before his face, thou shalt have no other God before me. And what that means is, in front of my face, And of course, his face is everywhere. He sees everything. And the point he's saying is, it's not like I don't see any of this. I'm your father. You're my child. And yet you're going to do this right in front of my face? You ever seen a man walking with his wife hand in hand? And they're walking down the road 
and a woman passes by going the other way while he's holding her hand does one of those that's what our idolatry is right in front of her face right before his face while he is being a faithful God to us, while he is being trustworthy in regards to our future, holding our future in his hands and telling us that all things, everything that happens is working to bring you all as my people to myself into glory, while he is being the source of good to us, unfailingly so, right in front of his face. trust in something else. We try to suck the good out of other things. This is no small thing, beloved. No small thing. It's an affront to his godness. To put a replacement God, a replacement trust, a replacement source of good Right in front of, and it's insane anyway. The scriptures point this out repeatedly. How idolatry is insanity and the scriptures mock it. Ears have they, but they hear not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They can't give you what you are expecting them to give you. As impossible as it is. For a statue of Buddha to give the Buddhist anything is impossible as it is. For a statue of Ganesh to give the Hindus anything, so impossible it is for anything that you and I put in his place to give us the good to be trustworthy. They don't have that power in them. They can't. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. They can titillate us for a little bit. But ultimately, we're sucking at a dry teat. It's folly. It's insanity. If doing the same things over and over, expecting a different result is insanity, then disobedience to the first commandment is utter insanity. And humanity's been doing it since that day that Adam and Eve reached out to an apple to give them the good and to the prospect of themselves being trustworthy for their future and themselves finding the source of good in their own ingenuity. We've had this temptation. How long, how long will will we be caught up in this hamster wheel of spinning, finding, trying to find our source of good and trust in all the various idols in our life and affronting Jehovah God in doing so. Well, of course, even as his children were never free of the battle, the struggle, until the end of our days. But there is true growth, beloved. There is true sanctification. There is true maturity and obedience to the first commandment. And Deuteronomy 10 tells us that it comes from the heart. That the remedy for this idolatry is a remedy that must begin in the heart. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise there the foreskin of your heart. It's not the case. That Old Testament religion was void of anything heartfelt. That it was pure ritual and only in the New Testament do you get to the heart. The Old Testament had the heart too. Circumcision was a sign of the cutting away of sin from the heart. The heart is the issue. The heart has always been the issue. The heart is still the issue. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And if there's no heart after God, no heart that is enlightened to see Him and to know Him, no heart that desires Him, then that's the center of the problem. And if there's little heart after Jehovah God, then there's all kinds of space for idols. And our desires run wild after them. And the remedy has to be that this heart after God has to grow and get bigger. But of course, you can't give yourself a heart after God. 
I can't give myself a heart after God. So God gives us a heart after God. And the remedy begins in the work of regeneration when He plants the life of Jesus Christ within us. A life that looks to God, that seeks for God, and longs the living God to see. Apart from that, we're utterly dominated by our idolatry. Looking to everything else as the source of good. Looking to everything else as trust for the future. Our hearts are constantly producing these idols if we can't find enough around us. Only if there is a heart transplant by sovereign grace and Christ's own first commandment keeping heart is placed within us in principle in this seed of new life, can there be a break to the tyranny of this idolatry over us? And he does this. And though that new life is within us alongside the old life and the old nature that is as idolatrous as ever it was. When that new life is planted within, it does break the tyranny of that idolatry so that we may walk in obedience to this first commandment. There is the possibility of keeping it because that life that is within us is drawn to this God. Irresistibly, it's drawn to Him Of course it is. It's Christ's own life within us. The Christ who himself seeks this God only as his God, who has this God only as his God, who entrusts his every moment to him and seeks for the good only out of him. If that's the life placed within us, and it is, then that life does the same thing within us. It seeks him, it wants him, it knows, it rises above the idols and says, here is the source of the good, here is the trust for the future. And so it's that life that leads the child of God to come here on the Lord's day and say, I want to see this God. I want to know more about Him and I want to know what I already know to be re-stamped upon my mind and heart again. I want to see Him in all of His majesty. It's that life within that leads the child of God to open the Scriptures where this God is found. To read them, to know them, to talk about them. And there to see the majesty and the glory of God that the mind might be filled with who He really is. Not a false conception of Him, but who He really is. So that standing before Him as He is, big in the mind, great before us in all of His works and ways and attributes, We are granted what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, which is itself the conscious remedy in us for idolatry. Remember that Deuteronomy 10 is all about the first commandment, explanation of the first commandment. Verse 12 Begins, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee in this commandment? But to fear the Lord thy God, that first. And out of that will flow everything else. Verse 20 again, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. And out of that the rest of the verse comes. Him shalt thou serve, to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. He is thy praise, he is thy God. Out of the fear of Him comes the trusting of Him, the seeking of Him, the cleaving to Him, the wanting of Him, the desiring from the good to come from Him only. That's why I read verse 29 in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 5 after the Ten Commandments. Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear Me, for they will keep My commandments always. Oh, that they would see Me, as I really am, as the great God, majestic, high, and lifted up big in their mind, that they would hold me as marvelous, mighty, sovereign Lord, just and true and holy and gracious. Then they will apply to me for the good. Then they will trust in me always. And then their puny little idols will be smashed in their minds and will fall away 
Then they will say, my heart and my flesh cry out for this living God. Then they will say, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none on earth I desire beside thee. The remedy for idolatry is regeneration first. And then out of that new life, having this God always before us, big and mighty, so that we trust him and seek the good from him. So stand before him this morning, beloved, as he is just for a moment. Stand before him in his works and creation. Stand before the, mic- the macrocosm, the-, the great expanses of his universe that he's made. In your mind's eye, look up at the stars as you've done before. And behold the works of your God. Moses calls us to do that in Deuteronomy 10. Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, the earth also with all that therein is. Think that he created all of this and he upholds all of this by the word of his power and it's nothing to him to do so. He spoke and all of this took its place and it has its courses in the universe by his upholding power. Say with the psalmist before, the expanses of the universe What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him. How puny you are. And how massive he is. Stand before the miniature works of his creation a moment. The particles. The building blocks of everything else that you see. The atoms. The quarks. Things on a nanoscale. Stand before the strands of DNA and all that is contained in that the proteins, the building blocks of everything else. See how mighty and majestic he is. Sometimes we stand before the works of men and we stand in awe of them. You go to a city and you look up at those big buildings and you stand in awe of how great they are. And then you get in a plane and you fly 20, 30,000 feet above all that, and you look down, it's so tiny. It's just a tiny little, tiny bump on this planet. It's, it's nothing. And you compare all of that to this universe that he made. You look at the nations of the earth and what they're able to accomplish, and you think they're so great and they're so mighty. But you get that perspective from up above. And you look at the expanses of the universe and you can see what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. They're they're just a drop in the bucket. They're a piece of dust on the scale. He's so great in comparison to this. He's so mighty and you stand in awe at his majesty and you begin to fear him, reverence him. He becomes big in your mind. You see his power and his greatness. But how much more awesome is he when you stand before him as the God of salvation. Stand before his works in salvation just a moment, beloved, and fear him as you ought. Psalm 103, verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Stand in awe before the one who grants this great salvation. Moses sets that before Israel too. Fear the Lord and fear him this way, verse 15. Only the Lord had to delight in your fathers to love them. He chose them out of all the peoples on the earth, even you, to be his people as it is this day. Think of that, beloved, before he ever created any of this that was here. He had you in his own mind and he set his love upon you in Jesus Christ and chose you in Jesus Christ to be his. He knew every moment of your days And determined every moment of your life in love for you. Ultimately to form and fashion you until the point when he would take you home to himself. And then he determined everything else in his creation would serve the end of magnifying his son in whom he chose you. And bringing you to be his son's bride and to bring you to glory with himself.
so that everything that occurs on this globe is working for you and for all of his people, this salvation. Every leaf that falls from a tree, every snowflake that falls from the sky, every time someone gets in their car and drives, every time somebody moves their toothbrush across their teeth, every time a bear wakes up out of hibernation, every time a a piece of fruit grows on a plant, Every time there's a crime or a murder or every time a crime or murder is prevented, all of it, everything has been determined by him for the salvation of his people. In time, this great and glorious God who is so high above his creation, so much higher than you are when you're 20,000 feet above the earth in that airplane, that great God decided to at the same time become minuscule like you and me and to enter into this creation to come become one of those tiny little ants there upon that earth in order to redeem their lives and to take them unto himself to give them a reason to live an eternal hope set before them and you tell me can your money do that for you? Has football done that for you? Can education do that for you? Can alcohol do that for you? Can vacations do that for you? Can the respect of other people do that for you? Him alone shalt thou love and serve. In Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph was worshiping money and things as the source of the true good in his life and what would be his trust to hold him into the future And he was troubled by the fact that the unbelievers around him had more money and more stuff than he did, even though he served God and they did not. And he said in his heart, it's vain to serve God because, of course, in his own mind and heart, God was not himself the source of the good and the one to be trusted. But God was a means to the money and the stuff that was in fact the God, the source of trust and of the good. And so when he saw that unbelievers had more, even though he served God, God's supposed to be the means to give me this stuff and I don't have enough of it as I would like. Why am I serving this Jehovah God? Until he went into the sanctuary and he gained the fear of the Lord, his sight of God and his word became bigger and bigger and bigger. He understood the things of God, the purposes of God, the works of God, and that was the remedy for his idolatry. He says, I saw their end, that though they have all of this, they don't have God himself. God himself, this great big God, is the trust, is the source of the good, and I have that. I have him And he comes out of the sanctuary singing a totally different song in Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none on earth I desire beside thee. He cures, he remedies our idolatry by showing himself again and again as he really is. So that we fear him as we ought. And he's big enough in our mind and heart so that all those other things don't grow and become big and take his place, but all those other things stay in their spot. You see how important 
the regular, simple means of grace is. So that you see Him in truth as He is. You see how important catechism instruction for the youth is so that they know Him as He is. How important it is to study the Word that this sight of Him, this fear of Him grows within us. And we trust Him and seek the good to come from Him. As the Catechism says, the keeping of the first commandment is first, rightly to know this big, great God. And then the rest comes. Then with humility and patience, I begin to submit to Him and His providence in my life. I begin to trust His providence with regard to my future. He becomes my only source of comfort and hope. Then though I am set aback by the sharp turns that His providence has for me, of course we all are. In due time I recover and, and, I, and I look up to Him and I trust Him and hold on to Him then these things that I'm tempted to put in His place stay in their spot. And I say I understand. They don't hold my future. Only He does. Because I know Him as the Sovereign One, as the God of Providence who loves me and determines all things for my good. And the closer I am with Him, seeing Him this way, the more unshakable I am, the more I trust Him in my life. And the more I seek the good and the joy and the peace and the hope to come from Him. And the more I use this world then without abusing it. I still use it, I still enjoy it as good gifts from Him. I still enjoy the football game, but it stays in its place. It doesn't become something that takes His place. And I can hold everything in its proper perspective. I know that He is the source of the good. I begin to follow His law. When He tells me, this law is good for you, walk in this way, then I say, He's the source of good. And so I'll walk in the way He calls me to walk. Really, beloved, the whole thing is in the first commandment, isn't it? He's glorious. He's marvelous. He alone holds our future and does so in love for us. And He alone is the source of the good and the proper desire of our heart. Have no other gods but Him. Amen. Father, bless us under the hearing of Thy Word and strengthen us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.